Hello, this is Peter Woolfolk. First, let me say thank you so much for being a listener. Now, I want to alert you to our shiny new podcast website located at podpage.com. However, you can go directly to the podcast site located at www.publicrelationsreviewpodcast.com. There, you can contact me through email. You can leave a voice message. You can leave a review. You can read an episode blog and frequently learn about the podcast guests. You might also want to suggest podcast topic ideas or even suggest a guest. You can also let me know if you would like to receive our podcast listener logo that you can post on your social media. So I look forward to hearing from you about our new podcast website, www.publicrelationsreviewpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Public Relations Review Podcast and have a great day. Welcome. This is the Public Relations Review Podcast, a program to discuss the many facets of public relations with seasoned professionals, educators, authors, and others. Now, here is your host, Peter Woolfolk. Welcome to the Public Relations Review Podcast and to our listeners all across America and around the world. Now, many public relations professionals have often written op-ed pieces for our clients with the goal of having it successfully placed either in a local newspaper or in one of the more nationally recognized newspapers. Unfortunately, when it comes to the larger, more recognized newspapers, the op-ed rate is actually abysmal. So why are your op-ed pieces being rejected? Well, my guest today has an answer for you. Now, he came to my attention several days ago when I read his article, Seven Reasons Why Your Op-Ed Was Rejected. Bob Brody is a public relations consultant, a veteran of Weber, Sandrick, and Ogilvy, and he is an essay who contributes to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. Now, he joins me today from Martina Franca in Italy. Bob, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. I am happy to join you, Peter. One of the things that you say that most submissions, after all, are declined. Getting your guest essay to run in the New York Times, for example, is probably harder than admission to Harvard or, which is really serious, or trying to reason with an alligator. So we really must be talking about an uphill battle here. It is a big challenge, and it's no exaggeration to say that it's tough. I've done this sort of stuff for a long time now. And uh, it's proven to me every day. But that, of course, never stops us from trying. It never stops clients from wanting to be in one of the top publications and from expecting a PR person to be able to deliver. So uh, we keep striving. But then sometimes, uh, happily enough, uh, almost miraculously, you might say, it does happen. One does get a piece in the New York Times or one of the other publications. Well, I tell you, let's uh, start at the top then, and let's talk about what some of those problems are that lead to rejection. Uh, the first one you say is space. What's happening there? Yes. Well, I mean, on the print side, there is just so much room. So, for example, the New York Times op-ed page will have generally three pieces, four pieces, and it's 
especially challenging for, for someone submitting what they now call a guest essay because the Times has its own regular columnists, and mm-hmm. that's true of all the major papers. They all have uh, lots of columnists, in some cases dozens of columnists, and those columnists have a certain space on a set day and that they occupy. So uh, when it comes to the print edition, there there's only so much room. There are publications that do have op-eds that will run only online and, and not in the print edition. And so the there's less of a limitation if your piece is going to run online. One example I can give you is the New York Daily News, which, uh, which I've contributed to and which has pieces that will run online that people who buy the daily paper might never see unless they go online and look. Well, this is a somewhat of an aside, but have you found part of the difficulty might also be because of the dwindling number of newspapers or consolidation of newspapers? Has that added to this problem? Yes. I mean, it, it, it's there's kind of a dual answer there, because on the one hand, yes, there are fewer newspapers, but it does seem to me that there are still more publications out there particularly digital publications, that present opportunities for op-eds. So I think it's fair to say that there are probably probably balances out so that there may actually be more opportunities than ever before because there are so many, there are so many new outlets. I mean, you have Vox Media, VOX, and you have the Morning Consult, and you have other strictly digital outlets that that will run opinion pieces and and opinion pieces seem to be more prized than ever i, I think yeah so so I, I think that uh, there there there's no shortage of opportunities out there okay well you, you mentioned the other issue is timing of a uh, bed it's true i mean uh, you may put together a piece about the infrastructure bill that's now uh, working through Congress, and just find out that the uh, that there's a, there's been a new development, and so now your piece is outdated. That's hard to control. It's hard to prevent from happening, but but it does happen. So sometimes you're you're just you're too late with a piece, and sometimes you're too early. Sometimes you submit a piece that's ahead of its time, and so. Also, something that's outside your control is that you may have submitted a piece about a topic that somebody else just sent in a piece about, and the editor might have chosen that piece already. So if you've written about the the immigration crisis or the border crisis, as it's called, and somebody else has sent in a piece about that topic that the editor already said yes to, then unfortunately you're out of luck. So um, and it's it's hard to control something like this. I mean, these are these are matters of chance, and so it is almost always something of a crapshoot. Well, uh, it sounds a little bit like uh, the the next one has maybe comes in with timing as well. But you also mentioned conflicts as another reason. Yes, and I'm trying to remember exactly what I wrote. I'm sorry. We said that um, the contributor already addressed the same issue yesterday. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar similar issue to what I just mentioned. So that's what it comes down to. 
Well, let, let me ask you now and go through these because perhaps the next one that answer my question when you mentioned stature uh, in terms of how these things are selected to be printed, the statue of the person. Yes, exactly. I mean, one, I mean, especially if you're going for a national publication, but I think this is true of local publications as well, one must be qualified. I mean, you, everybody, I mean, as they say, everybody has has an opinion. Uh, opinions are, are free and easy to come by. But are you qualified? I mean, mm-hmm. are you, if you're, if you're going to be talking about, if you're going to talk about climate change, or are you an environmentalist? Are you a, a geologist? Are you, uh, have you, have you recently published a book that says climate change is a hoax or that climate change is actually worse than anyone suspected? Uh, it, it's expected that someone will have some kind of credentials. And uh, in some cases, it's probably uh, it's helpful just to have a title of some sort that might be impressive. So if you're a chief, what do I want to call it? If you're if you're with a scientific organization, if you're the president of a scientific organization or if you're a professor of microbiology or something at a prestigious university, those are details, whether we like it or not, that will generally prejudice an editor in your favor. But one absolutely has to be qualified and to be a subject matter expert, someone who has expertise that has somehow been demonstrated already. So um, that's always key. And, and that's the question that I put to clients all the time, because I want to make sure that we have the most, I mean, a client will say we'd like to to hold forth on a issue A, B, or C, and I will say, and they will say, who do you think should write that? And so I may say it's the chief clinical officer, or some, or it's somebody who's actually conducted a piece of research, or it's someone who's trying to pass a piece of legislation or or a regulation of some kind. So it, it, qualifications count for a lot. Now you also mentioned originality. Help us uh, work our way through that one as well. Yeah, I mean, that it's understood that people have opinions that agree with other people, but editors are generally looking for something that is what they like to call counterintuitive, what I prefer to call against the grain or provocative or just somehow different from what we've heard before. Editors are always on the lookout for something that is is taking a stand that maybe nobody's taken before and can offer a look at a subject that's different from what people have said before that makes you say well okay i never i never thought of it quite that way so i think there there's a there's a very high premium on that it's easy i mean if you're if you're just going to agree with what that paper's editorial page has already weighed in on then you're then you're going to have a stiff challenge in front of you. But if you, if you're going to argue about why, and I guess I'll go back to climate change, why the, why the scientists who believe that climate change is a dire emergency, why they're exaggerating or how to show how their science is wrong or, or something along those lines. Generally, it's what I'll call debunkery, where you where you're just debunking something that is conventional wisdom or something that most people 
generally accept as an article of faith. If you, so if you're, if you're running counter to what other people are saying, or if you're just looking at it from a, from a different angle, I think that's helpful. So originality uh, makes a big difference. You know, as, as I listen to you talk about originality, I think, just sort of thinking out loud here, it appears to me that uh, from time to time when I listen to people on TED Talks, uh, some of the things that they talk about could may, maybe be ahead of their time or they're looking at problems or issues differently during those talks, that some of that information, if it's timely, could also be converted into an op-ed piece. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm going to acknowledge that I am, yes, I'm somewhat familiar with TikTok. I don't spend a lot of time watching it, so I'm going to have to take your word for it, but I Maybe that's what gets people lots of followers on TikTok. I mean, they're saying something that nobody's ever seen before. Or what, what's especially exciting, I think, is when somebody says something that you sort of had kicking around in your head, but never quite was able to articulate it. Mm-hmm. And somebody will, somebody will write something to the effect so that, so that you will say, oh, you know, I sort of wondered about that. Uh, and, and, but nobody's ever crystallized it for me, and and that and that sounds about right. So so that uh, does help a lot. I, I, and I realize it's it's tough to be original, but again, I push back on clients when when it seems necessary, and say, well, you know, it's great that your client is going to say that he's in favor of electric cars. Client wants to uh, mount another insurrection on. The White House, but I think I think we need to offer up something that spells out explicitly why this point of view is different from what other people have already said. Mm-hmm. I agree with what you said. I just wanted to be clear. Uh, I did say Ted T E D talks and, and not TikTok, but I think your answer fit right into what one gets on Ted talks when you hear people talking about those different ideas. I think Ted is technology, education, whatever else the, uh, that letter stands for, but that your, your response to that fits right into what they do in talking about new ideas, new approaches, new solutions to, uh, some problems that might've been around for a while. Excellent. Yes. And there are some great Ted talks and yes, some of those Ted talks would make great opinion pieces. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now you also mentioned in here empiricism. Yes, sorry if I sound a little academic there, but all I meant to say was that people um, often are under the misapprehension that opinion pieces are nothing but opinion, that all you have to do is say that uh, that this candidate is better than that candidate and maybe even say why, but without presenting anything other than, than your opinion. So if you're going to write something about why Amtrak needs to be scuttled or why Republicans are going in the wrong direction, you need to bring some facts to bear. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm a very much of the belief that you can, you can have an opinion on the op-ed pages if you have the facts. And it does seem to me more and more over the decades that facts are more prized than ever when it comes to opinion pieces, that editors demand and expect and insist on pieces that have 
some sort of data, some survey, a study, poll, whatever it might be, so that there is an underpinning, there's a factual underpinning to the opinion. So you can say, well, I think electric cars are a dumb idea, and then maybe cite a survey showing that that 50% of Americans tend to agree. I have no idea whether such a survey exists, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I sort of doubt it, but all this is to say that I think scholar, a certain level of scholarship is valued, and some research should be introduced into a piece. I just, it just does seem to me year, that years ago, as I recall, opinion pages often carried pieces from columnists, for example, that were basically lofty opinions that were based on impressions that they had and maybe on anecdotal evidence. And uh, maybe it's because we live in an age that's so driven by data that people want statistics. They want some numbers of some kind so that there's some sort of uh, scaffolding for, for an opinion, mm -hmm. uh, some, sort of, some sort of infrastructure for it. So it's something that uh, that I, I try to do and I try to uh, convince clients to do as well. Well, I know uh, one of the pieces that I was successful in placing uh, in terms of an op-ed piece, I actually used some of the uh, data that came from the Nielsen Group on uh, incomes for certain income groups, uh, education rates, and all of those sort of things. And because that data was in there to support uh, the position uh, of the clients. It was an, an accountant's association that I did it for. Uh, we were very lucky to have that thing placed. And what was really, really nice was completely coincidental that the op-ed appeared the same day that their um, national conference began here in Nashville. So that wound up being a double plus for uh, uh, not only for me, but also for them as well. Yeah, it sounds like that worked out beautifully. One of the things that I heard you mention, and I think maybe we could give a wee bit of attention to, is determination of the of the of the person wanting the or the client. Let's say that uh, because you mentioned here that sometimes you might have to try more than one place. You know, if you try this newspaper or that newspaper, and they don't take it, if there's some, if you firmly believe in what you're saying and you have the the data, so forth and so on, that perhaps you need to be persistent and try other places as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're lucky, you get it the first time. You submit a piece to a place and the place says yes, but that happens less than one would like. And sometimes you just kind of have to make the rounds and submit to a second place and a third place. And clients in those cases just need to be patient. You'd be surprised how many clients will ask you for an update five minutes after you've submitted an op-ed to an editor. Uh, yeah, I, I, sorry if that's indiscreet for me to say. but um, well, The facts are the facts. People, yeah, I mean, people, some people just have no sense of the process, and maybe they think that somehow this is, this is magic and they're going to submit something to the Wall Street Journal, and the editor there is going to be jumping up and down saying yes uh, right away. So... But it, all of it takes time. I spend. It, I need to counsel clients that editors need uh, typically a day, two days, three days to respond, and so they need to be patient. Some editors are uh, more responsive than others. In some cases, people 
take longer than that to respond or never respond or respond only if prodded uh, a week or two later. Generally, I have found that pieces that uh, of merit will we'll find a home eventually. Mm-hmm. And so persistence counts. Sometimes clients are surprised that I'm still at it, submitting pieces that they may have already given up on. Uh, and so they, once a piece finds a home, they, they're, they're thrilled. And they say, well, thank you for persevering, even though you've already collected rejections from six editors. And for me, it's just a matter of course. I mean, I just take it as a given that that's what you do. There are different, I mean, there, there's more, there's more than one option out there. So if one place Mm -hmm. says no, I take it for granted that almost certainly somebody will say yes anyway. One other thing I wanted to bring up just before we close, and that is clients themselves. I've run across clients that are adamant that certain things be done their way because as they told me, well, this is the way we always do it. I have a big problem with that because your professional skills and know-how and experience know this is not going to work. So have you ever been put in a place like that to know this is how we want to do it and you have a decision to make? Have you ever found that sort of a circumstance facing you? I I have, and it's to be expected. I mean, if you're doing something like this long enough, you're going to encounter people who either think they know better than you about op-eds or who think that they generally have all the answers and and are just resistant to your counsel and <laughs> to follow their own direction. And all I can do is offer the best, best advice I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I will say to clients, I hope that you understand that I'm telling you what I'm telling you about what your op-ed piece needs because I want I want this to succeed. So may, so maybe we can work on that basis. I mean, it, it really is an ongoing challenge in situations like that to practice the utmost diplomacy mm-hmm. because I, I never want to be anything less than absolutely professional. But at the same time, I never want to mislead people into thinking that they are the end-all, be-all necessarily, and that just because they drafted an 800-word piece that it's and maybe occupy some important place in American corporate culture, that that piece is going is to pass muster. So I, what it comes down to is, is I level with people. And on the whole, I think they appreciate it. And if they think I'm being difficult, they're entitled to that opinion. I'm just trying to do the best possible job. Well, Bob, thank you so very much for taking your time to uh, join us today. I really, really appreciate uh, the information you've imparted to our listeners. And uh, any closing words you have for, for our listeners? Well, I get the op- I'm, I thank you for the opportunity, Peter, to to hold forth on this topic. It's close to my heart. I call myself something of an op-ed holic because I, I do see, uh, and there is no twelve-step program for it that I'm aware of. Um, it's just it's something it's something very close to my heart. Uh, I've been doing these sorts of pieces for a long, long time. The first op-ed piece that I ever got published came out in the New York Times of all places when I was only 26 years old, probably to this day, one of the most one of the most thrilling moments in my life. And so I see the potential for op-eds in, in a lot of uh, places. And 
it's I, I also think of it as a wonderfully an American institution too. It really is democracy in action. It's it's free speech right there, written for all to see. So we all get to have our say in an op-ed piece. So I'm I'm a big believer, and I'm glad to get a chance to talk with you about it today. Oh, good. Well, my guest today has been Bob Brody, and he has joined us from Martina Franca in Italy. So once again, we certainly thank Bob for uh, for joining us on our program. And if you've enjoyed the show, we certainly would like to get a favorable review from you. So also let your colleagues know, and please you as well, join us for the next edition of the Public Relations Review Podcast. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Communication Strategies, an award-winning public relations and public affairs firm headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Peter Woolfolk speaking. Now, first of all, thank you so very much for listening to the podcast. Now, I am very excited to let you know that the podcast is now available on Amazon Alexa. You know the drill. Simply say, Alexa, play Public Relations Review Podcast, and she'll take it from there. And again, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy the program, please become a subscriber. Now, on to the podcast.